Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hello, friends. Welcome again to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. You have found us and we are glad you have. My name is Don Payne, and it's our privilege and sometimes our fun to have some really important conversations with you. So here are a couple of words for you. Woke. BLM. Now, it's fascinating how certain words, certain phrases can acquire emotional capital across our culture and then evoke really intense reactions that are across the spectrum. Uh, in recent years and months, the words or phrases like BLM and woke have risen to just that level. And Christians who have, who have their lives anchored in a commitment to biblical authority and the centrality of the gospel are not alone in often having visceral reactions of various types to those words and phrases and to what they represent or supposedly represent. Now, it's equally fascinating to me anyway, and, and very important that these simple words or phrases have often come to distill highly complex sets of ideas or systems of thought. So not everyone, not everyone uses these words to refer to the same thing, or not everybody has a shared definition of them. And, and the emotional reactions to them may go in opposite directions because people pick up on very different aspects of the complex thought systems behind these words. So in our ongoing effort here at Denver Seminary and through Engage 360 to provide you with conversational resources to help you look through the lens of the gospel at some of the toughest challenges we face, we're going to really get into the thicket today and try to gain some understanding of the core set of ideas behind those words I mentioned, like woke and BLM. Now, that set of ideas is formally called critical race theory, or sometimes referred to as CRT. So to help us along in this conversation, we're uh, glad to be joined again today by the ever insightful and articulate President Mark Young here. Welcome, Mark. I'm sorry, you may have another Mark Young here today. <laughs> well, there, there are lots of Mark Youngs around, so I, I just chose one out of the phone book, you know. <laughs> Welcome back. We're also grateful to be joined by our friend, Pastor Brandon Washington from Embassy Church here in Denver. Uh, Brandon has degrees in political science from the University of North Texas uh, and in theology from here at Denver Seminary. And I've never had a boring conversation with Brandon, whether those conversations range from watches, which I know he loves, mm -hmm. to politics, to theology, to culture. I am not sure what he knows about trucks, and that may be in the queue for our next conversation, but we'll, we'll see where he can go with that. Everything I know about trucks, you told me, so. <laughs> well, that, may be, that may be very little, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see, okay. But that's not where, what we're here to talk about, trucks. I wish it were, um, I wish it were that benign. But we, we need to talk about this, uh, this concept, critical race theory, that is currently, and has for a, a little while now, created quite a stir within the Christian community. Again, in, on, across the spectrum and in very different directions. Um, so first of all, what, what has prompted the need for this conversation? Uh, either one of you. Yeah, I think one thing that we, we wanted to be sure we 
thought about was a recent statement that was made by the seminary presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, essentially saying that critical race theory and the Baptist faith and message, the doctrinal standards of the convention really have nothing in common. Uh, there was a general statement made and then each of the six seminary presidents made their own uh, supporting statement. That got a lot of press in the Christian, on the Christian side of the equation and in the, in the broader um, popular press as well. And so uh, I think that many of our listeners would be aware that <clears throat> critical race theory became a topic on the broader Christian, broader church conversation and the church in relationship to the broader culture conversation as a result of this statement that was issued, I believe, back in December, if I'm not mistaken, or mm-hmm. somewhere in the late fall. Yeah, it, it came to a head uh, when the when the SBC presidents made um, their voices heard on this, uh, but it became it was an issue for me. Prior to that, I have a I have a good friend who pastors a church in Houston. Uh, his name is Blake Wilson, and Blake did a survey of all our, of all of his black pastor friends, and his question was, how many of you uh, reference the works of Karl Marx? or Black Lives Matter or critical race theory as you are preparing a sermon or any class you're gonna be teaching. And uh, unanimously, we all replied, none of us do that. We, you know, no, no one does that. And then he asked, how many of you have been accused of being a critical race theorist in the last two years? And unanimously, we all said that we had been. Um, and, I, and so one of the reasons I had to become familiar with critical race theory is people were accusing me of it based on what I'm saying. So I had to acquaint myself with the teachings of CRT so I can know what I'm responding to or what the accusation is. Okay, so I have in front of me here uh, kind of a textbook definition of CRT, critical race theory. But uh, before we get into textbook stuff, tell us, what are we talking about? What is critical race theory? How would you define it? So critical race theory has uh, two or three central tenets. It almost depends on who you're speaking to, but it has two or three central tenets. And the one that is a bigger issue for most uh, would be the first one. And that is that racism is a fundamental aspect of American culture. And, and not just, we're not just talking about the relationship between black and whites during slavery or, or during Jim Crow or the civil rights era while those are significant points. But, but the argument is that, that the hierarchy or caste system that comprises a racial an ethnic rift in the country is fundamental to an American identity. So America is not merely, the argument would be, that America is not merely a capitalistic society. It's the capitalism is itself racialized. And that, that tends to inform not just the things that we think of. So when we often think of racism in America, we're thinking of people in hoods with burning crosses, but they're applying this division, this racist uh, chasm that exists to the way finances are managed and the economic condition and education. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal in the, in the academic world and, uh, and the business world and the way and, and housing development. They're, they're saying that there's no aspect of our experience, no aspect of our identity as a country where this does not occur. And it did not occur accidentally. Mm-hmm. 
That's the primary stumbling block here. One of the problems that many of my opposing friends have is they tend to conceive the existing the existence of racism, but they're willing to discuss it only as an individual problem. The idea of it being systemic, a corporate condition is the stumbling block. And the argument being made from the CRT camp is if we're only going to visit this from the perspective of the individual, then the systemic brokenness will never find itself confronted. And so things like policing will be in the same condition because we're focused on the individual police officer who committed a particular atrocity. Instead of asking, did they commit the atrocity out of a racist policing system? That's a prime example. Yeah, I think it's important to note, Brandon and Don, that a lot of people would say that critical race theory finds its first expression among legal scholars as they begin to investigate how the legal system created different experiences for black and for white people. The system worked for the benefit of some and worked often to the disadvantage of others. And the system itself was used to continue those structures of inequality. Now there's debate as to whether that is the actual beginning of the terminology, but a lot of people would say that at least its early iterations were mm were expressed in the framework of law schools and discussions about law and legal systems. Right, that's, that's consistent with what I've come across that its, its origins were in maybe the early 1970s as a matter of legal discourse, legal research. And then over some period of time, it's sort of moved into numerous, numerous other arenas as, a, as an overall framework for analysis, a framework for all kinds of discourse, uh, particularly is uh, it, it seems it's moved into the realm of sociology mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. this kind of framework for analyzing everything that goes on in society and seeing it through that lens. Is that sure. here? Yeah, I think that, that obviously once you create a, a framework for how the world works, then the application of that framework can be uh, targeted in different dimensions of society. But if you think back to the legal to the legal system and how there was in it built in inequities and that the legal system supported those, think of voting rights. We, we don't have the Voting Rights Act until the 1960s. And so for generations for in, in the United States, the law upheld a distinctly inequitable, unjust uh, system of voting that prohibited black people, African-Americans, from being able to express their will at the polls and through the political system. So I, I think the experience of oppression caused scholars or helped scholars to ask what's going on here and create a theoretical framework and give language to it. And then, then from that basis, begin to apply it to other dimensions of life. I don't wanna make it sound like it's linear, but at least in terms of the way I've, what I've read historically, it was in the legal system that it began to be used. That's my understanding as well. Derek Bell was uh, an attorney who taught at both, uh, who's often, he's often associated with codifying, even if he's not identified as the founder of the movement, he's the one most associated with codifying it. And he taught at both Harvard and NYU Law School. So, what, Brandon, you've you've kind of hinted at this uh, in your comments already, but 
why is it that CRT is so, I mean, why is it that it evokes such reactions even in different parts of the Christian community, the white community, non-white community? Why is this so provocative? So if I want, I want to avoid being anecdotal as best I can, but in my experience, my observation has been that we prefer, because of the poor, the atrocious, the divisive history of, of our country and its founding, uh, we prefer approaching ahistorically. discussions ahistorically. We don't want anything that predates the moment we're in to have a significant influence on the discussion that we're presently having. So one of the problems you'll run into is uh, the idea of engaging uh, an ethnic rift, the racism that we encounter today. It's the attempt is to address it as an isolated event that happened on a specific day and nothing that precedes that moment led to that, led to that, uh, that moment. And that's a troubling thing because it lets those who identify with the offending party off the hook because it's just them who did this. History had nothing to do with this. It's not a part of our cultures, our, our nation's ethos, not a cultural value of ours. It lets the, the non-actors off the hook so you can blame those who are guilty of the present atrocity was a stumbling block for people of color. Uh, I, I will speak specifically for the black people with whom I've interacted. We are unable to make the separation from the present event from, we cannot separate it from the, pre, uh, the, separate the present event from the previous occurrences that may have been the runway for the moment that we are in. I think that that's the reason, frankly, I am often accused of being a critical race theorist. I need to say this every time critical race theory comes up and I'm involved in a conversation, I'd have to say this adamantly. I am not a critical race theorist. I am not. There are, there are a few reasons I cannot be a critical race theorist. I think CRT has a poor anthropology. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it has a poor homardiology. The, their doctrine of humanity or, and their doctrine of sin are both uh, not, uh, they both violate what I understand scripture to say on the issue. And because of that, because of those two issues, they have no doctrine of redemption. And as a preacher of the gospel, I'm a big fan of what Christ has done. His death and resurrection is redemptive. I, and because of that, I can't be a critical race theorist. I need to say that very clearly because I'm going to get emails. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so, but, but having said that, Critical race theory, theory shares a historical hermeneutic with the black church. Yes. So usually when I'm being accused of being a critical race theorist, it's because I am reading history in the same way that CRT reads history. And because of that, independent of one another, we came to a common conclusion about our present condition. And instead of recognizing that the commonality between us is our historical hermeneutic, is the, our perspective on the series of events that resulted in where we are now, instead of recognizing that as the thing we have in common, I'm treated as a whole cloth embracer of critical race theory. It's better to describe my relationship with critical race theory as, and I, and I steal this, this is not my phrase, I steal this from Francis Schaeffer, um, I, critical race theory and the black church are co-belligerents. Mm -hmm. 
there are so many things that the two institutions disagree on. But the one thing they cannot ignore is that history lends itself to believing that there is not merely an individual, the individual expressions of racism, but there is a, there's corporate sin, there is systemic sin, there is innate brokenness. And the difference between, I would, I would say from my position, the difference between how a critical race theorist sees that and how I see it is, I believe that by the power of the gospel, conceding the brokenness, I believe that brokenness can be redeemed, it can be repaired, it can experience restoration. Whereas every friend I have who is a critical race theorist will argue, because it is broken and the nature of its brokenness makes restoration impossible. So the appropriate response is to see it as what it is and then destroy it and ideally replace it with something much more ideal. Yeah, and that's, that's what I've seen uh, in the descriptions of CRT is that it is intolerant or maybe just fatigued with the sort of uh, incremental progress idea and yes. wants to scrape the parking lot, as it were, and just start over. Yes. And of course, that's, that's understandably unsettling to many. Uh, but it's curious, isn't it, that uh, that that, that, um, that that kind of response grows out of this type of historical analysis, because I hear you, Brandon, going in a different direction with the same historical analysis. Or yeah, I, you know, you, you, it's, it's slightly different. It's just, we're, we are just askew of one another, but you know, when you're just askew at one inch, by the time you get out to a hundred miles, you're gonna be far apart. Yeah. And right. I, I think that's what you're noticing. I do not believe they are wrong with how frustrating the incremental progress can be. Yeah. I also would think that we need to pay attention to their observation of how the progress occurred. So going to the 1954 Brown versus Board decision, which was supposed to be the death knell of, of Jim Crow. It should have ended separate but equal, but it didn't. We did not get, we had to, we had to have a 1964, a full decade later, 1964 Civil Rights Act. We had to have, Dr. Young mentioned this earlier, we had to have a Voting Rights Act in 1965, in spite of having an amendment in place already that should have upheld a right to vote. And they had to have a Voting Rights Act that defended the assertion of the amendment. And then in 1968, a Fair Housing Act. Now I mention that because I'm old enough. I, I was not born in 1968, but that's only a few years before I was born. And the, 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 fru the fruit that should be born from those acts had not come to fruition on my birth date in 1975. So we're not going back to 1865. We're going back to a time when many of the, those who are saying that everything is okay. In 1975, many of the people who are critical of the assertions of CRT, they were adults. So they know it wasn't okay in 1975. And I think that that read, that understanding of history through the lenses of a critical race theorist is the kind of thing that should not be set aside so quickly. The incremental progress is a frustrating one and it can also be self-serving. One of the things that, that Derek Bell argues is the 1954 Brown versus Board decision was not out of some type of ethical magnanimous perspective on it. It's because the world was watching 
and you're about to have these international trade and arrangements with other countries. And it makes for a better presentation for you to be a country that is able to set aside segregation. So this, the, the, the Brown decision was not influenced by the, the recognition of the rights of black people. It was so that the country could look good to other countries and have better trade exchanges with those nations. So even those moments of progress were self-serving from a national perspective, Bill makes a pretty strong argument. He made he has passed away, but he makes a, he made a pretty strong argument of uh, of things of that sort. So it's not only incremental, but sometimes it's not as ethically grounded as we would like the viewers to believe. Yeah. Let me make a comment too, Don, if I may. You talked about burning it down, right? Tearing or scraping the parking lot, and how unsettling that is. Well, it's profoundly unsettling for those for whom the system works. Yeah, right. Those, right. those for it. whom the system has created wealth and privilege. And I know as soon as I say privilege, that just creates all types of alarm bells and fire shoots out of people's eye sockets. But the fundamental concept of privilege is that the system works for you. Right? Yeah. And then who, those for whom it doesn't work, well, yeah, tearing the system down may be a good idea because it doesn't work it continues to create disadvantage for some and advantage, significant advantage for others. That is absolutely contrary to the basic tenets in our Declaration of Independence. The system is to work for all. The systems of government, the systems of representation, the systems of law, and ultimately the economic structures that those systems have created a foundation for, they're supposed to work for all, but they didn't and they still don't. Mm -hmm. Let, let's think about this in terms of the gospel because in a lot of conversations among Christians, more particularly um, you know, biblically anchored, biblically committed Christians, CRT and its, and its corollary uh, movements are out, or uh, the, iterations of CRT mm -hmm. are often viewed in terms of the gospel or through the lens of the gospel. And I, I hear it frequently polarized against the gospel. And, and Brandon, you, um, you, you made some references in this direction that there are traits of CRT, there are emphases of CRT that seem fundamentally opposed to the gospel, their doctrine of sin, the doctrine of um, humanity, personhood, anthropology, but what I want us to take a to, to nuance those lenses a bit and see both where and how CRT contrasts to the gospel and where there might be uh, at least uh, impulses or currents within some aspects of CRT that are congruent, compatible with the gospel, if there are. Let's, let's, let's look at that in both directions if we can. How does right. How do, we, how do we look fully at CRT through the lens of the gospel? I do not believe that, um, that, that when, there, when, when CRT is being drafted, I don't believe that the details of the gospel were first and foremost in the minds of the drafters, okay? <laughs> but, I, but I think that in, inevitably, if you're having a conversation regarding an objective, demonstrable, a defensible, view of justice, 
inevitably you're going to have a backdoor entrance to what the gospel is. I think that one of the huge mistakes we're making, and this is a doctrinal issue from within the church, I think that we have treated the gospel as the means by which humanity is eternally saved. And that's what we're saying it is only. It's just that. And we're treating the world like it is a sinking ship and our responsibility as messengers of the gospel is to get people off the ship before it sinks. So if you only take that sort of limited view of the gospel, which is not incorrect, but it, it just is what it is. If you only take that, that, start there, go with that, it's easy to utterly polarize CRT with the gospel in every respect. Absolutely. And I th here's what blesses me, though. Here's what blesses me. I was reading, uh, I was reading Carl Henry um, a, few, a few days ago. And Carl Henry said that that understanding of the gospel is truncated. I thought I came up with that idea on my own, thought I was being brilliant. And Carl Henry wrote it down 80 years ago. He says, that understanding of the gospel is a truncation. He actually used that word. He said, any understanding of the gospel that is not attentive, and I'm, I'm quoting him here. I need to be careful to say this. I'm quoting him. Any understanding of the gospel that is not attentive to social justice is not a whole gospel message. And he said that 80 years ago, and he was not a black man when he said it. <laughs> and so, I, and I say that because that does in many regards align with the language and the hopes of CRT when it comes to discussions regarding justice. They may not have the means of doing it because they don't have a redemptive message, but their assessment of the broken circumstances align with the bad news introduction to a gospel message. Mm. That's a good point, Brandon. And of course, let's remember Carl F.H. Henry is writing in this area in reaction to fundamentalism yes. of the early 20th century, which had basically said, all we got to do is get people saved and certainly before the rapture, and then the world will take care of itself. It's doomed. It's going downhill anyway. So let's just get people rescued, right? So when he carves out, I use that word specifically, when he is one of those founders that carves out a new identity that we know is evangelicalism, that understanding of the gospel creating real change in the lives of people now, as well as in society, and that structures are a part of how people experience now, and they need to be changed as well. That was dramatically, that was dramatically a part of our founding. Unfortunately, our history is so given to a revivalist understanding of the gospel going way back in early colonial period and continuing to a certain degree, and I want to be careful here, up through the Billy Graham era, because Dr. Graham made some very strong statements toward the end of his life. Mm -hmm. Because that's the case, this whole idea of individualized salvation and what I call a siloed salvation, which is just in the silo between me and God, that is, in fact, a truncated gospel. That's mm. true to the nth degree. But the gospel of what I call the gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus announces in his early ministry, is a gospel that says all of those who have found redemption in Christ create a way of life that is radically different than any life that the world can create. So I think one of the points of, of contact that we can talk about positively 
is in the justice arena, we're really talking about that life that everyone is created to live, a life that allows them to find satisfaction in the things that are created and, where, and that structures have inhibited them from finding. So those structures have to be done away with so that the fullness of the gospel in this world can be fully experienced as well. And you know, it occurs to me that one, of, one piece of history that uh, many of us need to own a, a little better or at least acknowledge is that that mid 20th century uh, American evangelicalism in which Carl F. H. Henry was located and, and carving out that niche that evangelicalism was in a highly reactionary mode against that early 20th century mainline Protestant, uh, what they called modernism at the time. We right. Don't denote it quite that same way these days, but that modernism that had advocated for themes like social justice, but seemingly at the expense of the historic gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the, the, the evangelical church was clamped down so hard in reaction against that, that for a long time, it seems, anything that that smelled like that kind of emphasis seemed to compromise or it seemed to threaten the historic gospel. And, and, and now we're, we're looking at saying, no, that we, we got to recapture that because that is implied in the gospel. That is inherent to the, the character of, of all that God has to redeem and wants to redeem. But that, but that reaction is profound. And Brandon, you and I have had many conversations about that, how our yeah. theological emphases, our, the, the contours of our theology are profoundly shaped by, what, by whatever we're reacting against. Yes, reactions are key. I, I do want to touch on something that, that is, is going to be a, that has been a theme, I think will be going, going forward. And that is, I think that one of the bigger issues, and this may be me getting ahead, Dr. Payne, if so, then let me know. But... I think one of the bigger issues is black people, and, and I'm going to narrow this down to one example of an ethnic rift. But black people and white people do not read history in the in precisely the same way. And this goes to a point that Dr. Young said earlier that he he mentioned the the potential for privilege. I think that without realizing it, many of my friends evaluate history through a privileged lens. Mm-hmm. So I had a conversation with uh, an associate, an acquaintance who graduated from seminary with me. And, um, and he was telling me about, about the trajectory, the ethical trajectory of the country has always been toward justice, liberty, and freedom. And his argument, by the way, was because of that, then much of the protest should stop and we should just wait for it to unfold because the good end is inevitable. And that's why Martin Luther King had to write an essay entitled Why We Can't Wait. It's easy to say wait when you're not the one enduring. I want to point that out. Yeah. So it it fascinated me that he was saying that to me. But the bigger fascination was his read of history was justice, righteousness, deliverance was always going to happen because it's innate to the American ethos. And my question is, what history book are you reading? Because even the progress that occurred and I don't deny the existence of progress, but even that progress occurred with the nation being drugged along, kicking and screaming in many regards against their will. So whenever someone tells me, you know, 1865, 
uh, comes comes and we have the end of the Civil War and then we have a 13th Amendment and and for some reason the Emancipation Proclamation gets mentioned but contextually that's not a relevant document and then but you get to the 13th Amendment and slavery's come to an end no it didn't no it didn't it fascinates me that I have to bring this to their attention no it didn't did you have Reconstruction for about a dozen years yes but in response to Reconstruction attempts to re-enslave the liberated occurred occurred that's why you have an exception in the 13th amendment those who can be arrested can be enslaved again so you can be arrested for a misdemeanor like vagrancy mm -hmm. you can be unemployed which is a crime be arrested for being unemployed and then be enslaved because you were arrested for being unemployed and think about this for a moment who is going to be unemployed in droves in the immediate aftermath of emancipation? Mm -hmm. Former slaves. That was not an accident. And then you move from that to sharecropping. And sharecropping is a means of putting workers in crippling debt. And therefore, they are enslaved to you for the rest of their lives. And you move from that to Jim Crow, which creates not only an ethnic hierarchy, but sustains a socioeconomic division that follows the same lines as the ethnic hierarchy. The way that we tend to read history is we'll look at dots on a timeline and say, this happened on this day. And after this day, this problem was gone. But that's not the way Black people read history because they know what both preceded that moment and proceeds from that moment because it directly affected them. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a book written by Paul Cohen and I'm reading it for some, some research I'm doing for some writing I'm having to get done. And he, he wrote a great book entitled History in Three Keys. And the three keys are event, experience, and then myth. Mm -hmm. And he's not using the word myth in a negative sense you're not using the negative connotation it's the it's the narrative the record of the event as it was passed through the experience of the record keepers well if you think about this for a moment if two different people or two different people groups experience an event differently then the narrative they have for that moment is not going to be the same that's why black people who are, who are speaking from the perspective of the marginalized, they look at the 20th century and they see something different from their white counterpart, which is why my father, who will be 75 years old in August, when he hears the phrase, make America great again, his question was, okay, wait a minute, when, when are we going to? That's what he wants to know. When you say again, what time are you referring to? Because he's from Natchez, Mississippi. And he cannot think of a time, his, his consistent comment on this is, if you invent a time machine, I'm going to tear the part of it that goes into the past out. Because there's no point in the past to which I can go that is better than the moment I am. So it's terrifying to hear make America great again, because his question is, when was it great? And he can ask that question only because he doesn't have a historical perspective that's in line mm -hmm. with his contemporaries of the white ethnic group. Mm -hmm. you know, Mark, you have mentioned to me that uh, you're, the years you spent in Eastern Europe uh, under various Marxist regimes has given you some lenses on all of this because I know CRT is sometimes accused of being rather wholesale Marxist. I, I'd love to hear 
some of those reflections from your experience with uh, Marxist countries. Glad to do it. I, I certainly don't consider myself a, an expert in Marxist theory. I would say, however, that Marx built his understanding of the world on his interpretation of history. And just as Brandon pointed out, there are people who interpret history through the lens of being oppressed or through the lens of not benefiting while others benefit from the systems that are in place. That's what Marx saw. And so, as Brandon also pointed out, Marx's solution wasn't necessarily that there's individual responsibility, but that there are systems of oppression that have kept people from being able to find and achieve that life that's possible for them. And so Marxism was birthed out of that kind of, a, of, an, of an idealistic vision. However, his anthropology was so deficient because those who then were, took on power to create that Edenic vision abused that power, right? So I, I saw the bad side of Marxism, a Marxism that created futility, a Marxism that created an absolute sense that no matter how hard I work, nothing is going to change in my life. Now, Brandon, compare that to the experience of those in the Jim Crow era and also in the time of Reconstruction, right? It was, it's not an individual matter of laziness or an individual matter of a lack of talent. You just can't make any progress. And that bred an incredible sense of futility in Eastern Europe where I lived. What I found interesting is as those countries transitioned, we were living in Poland at the time, from a Marxist system that was grounded in futility, you had this period of intense hope. But as the society began to develop around more free market strategies, very quickly, there were those who benefited significantly and those who suffered significantly. And so in many of those countries, you ended up with something like a social democracy, which created structures of government that will continue to provide the needs of those who are disadvantaged by the system and yet more freedom and opportunity for those who are able to take advantage of the system. Mm -hmm. So for me, I agree there are tremendous philosophical differences between Marxism and between uh, Christianity, but I do think there is something to be seen and learned from the way Marx interpreted history and came to the conclusion that there are winners and losers in history, that power is not allocated or utilized proportionately. It's always disproportionate, social power, economic power, and some people lose. Yeah. As, we, uh, as we wrap this up, I'd love to hear from each of you one or two key takeaways that will help us, help us from a gospel vantage point find some, some better ways forward some better ways through the impasse of the futility and the hopelessness and the illusion of incremental progress uh, or over-individualized understandings of the gospel. How, how, do, how does the gospel in a couple of key ways push us forward through all of this? Well, there, there is no real gospel in the New Testament that doesn't seek life in its fullness for every person, everyone created in the image of God, equally loved by God, and equally provided for in the redemption of Christ on the cross. So the gospel has to have a vision 
that each and every person can experience life as God created it to be lived through the power of the gospel and the community of those who are committed to it as they address the ways in which an unredeemed society continues to oppress and take, take advantage of some for the benefit of others. I cannot, I cannot change, I cannot amend that much. I, I will tell you that uh, I think that one of my, um, I have to be transparent here. So one of my consistent refrains is we have to preach a whole gospel. Mm -hmm. And I think our eternal condition is set. We are justified and Dr. Payne, we are already sanctified. <laughs> um, we are, I think that is set because of the, the death and resurrection of our King. I believe that our temporal wholeness is as available to us, is as set because of the same death and resurrection. That's Ephesians 2 in its entirety. We should not stop at verse 10. We should read the whole chapter. I think that the same work of Christ accomplished both temporal and eternal wholeness. And I'm realizing day by day that I may be preaching a gospel message that is akin to, but not identical to, my white evangelical siblings. And that has resulted in probably the most heartbreaking, depressing year I have experienced in my entire life. I am, I am right now experiencing what it is for dear friends of mine who are leaders in the black church. I feel like I'm standing in a burning house and I have friends who are outside the house who are for my safety, for my own well-being. They're calling me out of the house and they're not asking me to leave orthodoxy. They're not asking me to walk away from the faith, but the idea that evangelicalism is a theological movement, which is a view that I have espoused since I first heard the word. With each moment, I'm realizing that that may not be true. It may be a cultural movement that has theological language. Mm -hmm. And that, mm -hmm. that, that cultural aspect of it may be doing me harm and undermining my mission to be a, a messenger of a whole gospel. And I have friends who are saying to me, that's what's happening to you, come out of the house. And I say to them, I need to stay here to redeem the movement. I'm the voice of redemption. But while I'm in the house, which is burning down around me, I have people inside the house who are offended my, by my attempts to redeem because the consistent question is why would you redeem that which, was, which is not in need of redemption? So they're pushing me out of the house. Mm -hmm. It's creating this loneliness because I'm saying to those who are lovingly calling me out, I have to stay here. And while I'm doing it, I feel like I'm being pushed out by those I'm trying to, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to pour into them. And my only hope is that Christ died and he resurrected. Um, that bring, and that brings wholeness, not just eternally, but temporally. And I have to lean into him because when I was younger, when I was new to the faith, I could look to the church and get a glimpse of what I thought Christ looked like. And with each passing day, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. 
I have to look to Christ directly because of those who bear his name and claim to be the, the purveyors of his message do not seem to reflect the kingdom over which he reigns. And I'm struggling with that with every given moment. Well, Brandon, let's build a new house. Let's carve out the next evangelicalism, whether, whether we want to retain the title or not, that maintains that orthodoxy that you and I hold dear and around which we've organized our lives and calls the church to a whole gospel at the same time. So let's do it. Let's build it together. Denver Seminary is ready to be with you in that. Let's build a new house. Lord help us. Lord have mercy. Gentlemen, thank you, Pastor Brandon Washington, Dr. Mark Young. So great to be with you again. Friends, thanks for joining us here on Engage 360. We're, uh, we're grateful to you. Love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. Let's keep this conversation going. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care.